pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this beautiful day and your faithfulness to provide for our needs. We thank you, too, that as we've just sung, um, though you work in a mysterious way, you are our final interpreter, and you will make all the events of life plain in your own time. Thank you that you know the end from the beginning. We entrust ourselves to you now and ask you to bless your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As a kid, my dad would uh, get me up and ready for school, and part of the ritual was to cut an orange in half, and after he'd sliced it, then he would go around the two sections and cut out all the wedges, and then he would put it on the plate for me. And uh, I had the privilege of taking all those little sections out and then squeezing it to get every last drop of juice out of that piece of fruit. Um, I grew up thinking that that's part of fatherhood, adjusting a person's schedule so that he could take care of his kid in the morning. And I'm grateful to be able to look back on that experience. I wonder if there might be an image, though, in my squeezing the orange that would help the orange that would help us as we go to the next passage in the life of David. And it's this. If you haven't experienced it already, uh, sometime in the past or in the present, it's pretty likely that sooner or later you will find yourself squeezed by life circumstance. Not so much in the sense of getting some sweet uh, drink out of it, but rather feeling the pressure. We want to be people who, from a Christian point of view, respond to the pressure of life in a way that shows that we have a heart for God, as David did. And so we're going to look at the section that John just read, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 29, beginning with verse 1, down through chapter 30, verse 6, and um, see how pressure, squeezing, was very much a part of that event. Um, in fact, we're going to look at it from this angle. First of all, uh, the Philistine generals squeeze Achish. And then Achish squeezes David. And then the Amalekites squeeze David again. They're all squozen. Um, it's a good word, isn't it? I don't really think it's a word. Debbie and I were discussing that. I think the past progressive of squeeze is squeezed, or has, has been squeezed. <laughs> anyway, after we've done that, after we've looked at this squeezing exercise, then we want to see God's deliverance, and finally we want to bring it home and say, well, how might this that we see in David relate to where you are? Now, before we really get going on 1 Samuel 29, I want us to think about the larger context, and we have a little slide here to help you with it. Um, you'll notice that this runs um, from tw chapter 28, verse 1, 
down through chapter 31, verse 13. And you'll also see that the writer has been pretty careful in the way that he structured things. Um, there's an introduction where we have the setting for the battle that is about to come, and then at the very end, the aftermath, the recovery of the bodies of Saul and his sons from that battle. And then the next level in, the prediction of the witch of Endor, and then the prediction comes true down in B primed, chapter 31, verses 1 to 7. David returns to Ziklag. That's the section we're going to look at today. And uh, then C primed, David returns to Ziklag yet again. And really the core of this whole uh, section, which talks to us about the death of Saul, is in chapter 30, verses 7 to 25, where David is victorious over the Amalekites. I did not create that outline. It comes to us from David Dorsey, who's uh, written a book entitled Literary Structures of the Old Testament. But it does get to where these verses we're going to look at today fall into the larger picture of the death of Saul. So we're going to look at David's return to Ziklag. Why? was David going back to Ziklag in the first place? Well, he's really he's in a very difficult situation. If you remember, um, he was certain that Saul was going to kill him. And he thought the only way to get away from his murderous attempts is to go into the land of the Philistines. And so he goes back to his friend Achish, and Achish says, you can live in Ziklag, you and your 600 men and their families. You can stay there. And over the course of their relationship, there are a number of things that are going on. On the one hand, David is uh, running a marauder's band. And they go out into Philistine territory and they plunder and they murder. And then he comes back and Achish asks for a report, and David says, oh, well, I was down in Judah. Uh, we were plundering there. And because David has killed everybody where he has gone to plunder, there's never re a report that comes back to Achish. And so Achish thinks David has really separated himself from Saul. He is a trusted military leader, and I'm going to make him my own uh, personal bodyguard. And so Achish is glad for David to be part of his work as a military leader. Now, what he, has said, what he also says to David after they've developed this 16-month relationship is, by the way, we are going to war against Israel and you are going to come along. And David replies in a somewhat braggadocious way, you wait, you'll see what I can accomplish with you. So David ends up now on the way, and if you look at chapter 29, you'll see that the Philistines are now going to gather so that they can fight against Israel. And here is David. How will the coming king of Israel be able 
to lead his people effectively if he joins their enemy, the Philistines, and engages with the Philistines against the Israelites? That's the question that the narrator seeks to answer for us. How can that ever happen? And so, uh, we see in the 29th chapter, uh, it pretty evenly divided, verses 1 to 5, uh, as I said before, the Achish is squeezed by the Philistine generals. And then in verses 6 through 11, David is squeezed by Achish. So what's the, what's the squeezing that goes on? Well, Achish comes along with his men, and behind them are David and his men, and the other Philistine generals who have already gathered, they see this, and they say, what, is the, what are these Hebrews doing here? I think it's in verse 3. Well, what are they doing there? They are to support Achish. But the Philistine generals uh, can see what perhaps, what, what Achish cannot see, David poses a threat. They imagine that they'll get into battle and this Israelite leader will suddenly attack them. He'll be a force on the side of the Israelites. And they say, this can't happen. They're angry with Achish. And then they remind him, isn't, verse 5, isn't this man David the one of whom it was said, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands? These are Hebrews. As best we can tell, the use of that word is kind of a slur. Um, they're saying, these people of Jewish descent are social misfits. Um, and we really don't want to have anything to do with them. So what are they doing here? And Achish now steps to the plate and he defends David. I think verse, first of all in verse 3. He says, um, is, yeah. is this not David, the servant of the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Now, as readers of the larger story, we can kind of snicker. The only reason that Achish hadn't found any fault is because David had disguised his plundering and his murder. But that's what he thinks. And the Philistine leaders say, no way. Uh, we are not going to have him be part of this operation. And so there is Achish caught in the middle. The next verses, 6 through 11, Achish has to deliver this message to David, and he does. And he goes to him and he says, Now, David, uh, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And we snicker again. You've been honest to me. Seems right that you should march out and be with me in this campaign. I've found nothing wrong in you. But now go back peaceably uh, so that we don't displease the lords of the, uh, of the Philistines. Now, now what's David supposed to do? 
he can't very well say, I am so relieved. I didn't really want to go and fight with you anyway because now then I'd be fighting against my own people Israel. He can't do that. And so he protests. And he says, what's wrong with me? Haven't I been faithful to you? Liar. Uh, buddy, that's what he says. Haven't I been faithful? And then Achish uh, again says, you have to go back. And, and David then acquiesces. And so we come to the end of this section. And it's interesting. Uh, verse 9, Achish says, I know that you're as blameless, you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Only two references in this chapter, I think, to the Lord having any part in what's going on. They both come out of the mouth of a pagan. And then we read, verse 10, rise early in the morning, you and your servants, start early in the morning. And so verse 11, David does go out early in the morning and returns to the land of the Philistines. Uh, and, and then the Philistine leaders, well, they go up to fight. Isn't the contrast interesting? If you remember last week when we looked at Saul and the witch of Endor, we come to the end of chapter 28 and we are told after Saul receives this awful news that he, will be die, that he will soon die, then he and his companions go out into the night. And with David, in contrast, the new king of Israel, he's about to be installed, but not yet. What happens to him? He and his men, crack of day, they're out there early in the morning. And we're, we're reminded of Psalm 30 that says that uh, weeping can last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And so we can only think that David, as, his, as he and his men go along, are really skipping inside at least. They are happy as can be. They are so relieved they can't stand it. Oh, yes, they have had to go about 60 miles, and now they have another 60 miles to go back home, but... Wait till we get back home. It's going to be great because we're going to see our families. And we didn't have to go to war anyway. It's just the best. Let's just pause here and think about the squeezing that goes on in this 29th chapter. Nobody got the Philistine generals over on the side and said, you better watch out for David. They came to that on their own. And they're able to put enough pressure on Achish so that he concurs. And out of all of that, what's really happening? The hand of God is at work, quietly behind the scenes. He's working his plan, his sovereign will, as we just sang, so that David would be able to be freed from this awful, awful entanglement. 
Kind of reminds us of Romans 8.28, doesn't it? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Things in life don't happen by chance, but by God's appointment. And certainly, David is not freed from this entanglement with the Philistines by his own good planning. He's freed from it by God's kind grace. And just so that we get thinking along the lines of the passage a little more personally, can you think of any times when you found yourself in a mess, perhaps of your own making, and the Lord delivered you from it? Boy, I can. And as we ponder those expressions of the Lord's kindness, they're certainly intended to move us to thank the Lord and to worship him. Well, so, here comes David and all his men, and they are going home, and they can hardly wait to get there, and then that brings us to the next squeezing, chapter 30, verses 1 to 6, and what do we find here? When they get to Ziklag on the third day, you can imagine now they're tired, right? The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And so as David and his men come home, rather than a warm, friendly family welcome, they are left with smoldering ruins. Talk about pressure. worse than that though because next verse the Amalekites have taken captive the women and all that were in the village both great and small they killed no one but carried them off and went their way we're told that this is, uh, as you can imagine, such a traumatic thing that David and his men weep until they cannot weep another tear. Have you ever been in that situation? Some awful disappointment has come your way and you can't cry another tear. They're physically exhausted, probably hungry. They're emotionally exhausted, but it gets worse. And here's the next real pressure on David. David's wives, they've been taken captive. And David is greatly distressed because the people speak of stoning him because they're bitter in soul. I think if we went around the room we would be able to, we would have one person after another say, yes, I know what it's like to be at the end of my rope. I have often felt as if I couldn't take it another moment. And that's what's going on here. 
David's men, they want to kill him. They're looking for somebody to blame. And what usually happens when things go wrong, the leader gets it, right? It's like Moses in the Old Testament. They want to stone David. And we're told here that David was greatly distressed. Where did we last find that phrase in the story of David? Do you remember? Well, probably not because we didn't talk about it very much. But uh, it was last week. What happens when Saul gets this news about the battle that's before him? He says to Samuel, the witch of Endor brings up Samuel from the dead, and he says to Samuel, I am greatly distressed. Well, it's the same word that is used to describe David here. I am greatly distressed. Or uh, we could translate it, I'm in a tight spot. That would be another way to say it. Or another way to say it is, I'm squeezed. And so now notice the contrast that just thinking about those two places where we've seen that word brings up for us. On the one hand, we have Saul. He is greatly distressed. There's a crisis. There's a leadership problem. He's in deep trouble. He's at risk. And so what does Saul do? He goes to a medium, a spiritist. He goes to a witch and says, please put me in contact with somebody from the past so that I can get some direction for the future. And what does David do? Well, look at the end of verse 6. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. David doesn't go to a witch. David doesn't go to the dead in hopes of getting direction for the future. He goes to the Lord in his time of need. And it says that he strengthened himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord, his God, actually. See it there? There's this personal relationship that has, is of great value for David when he's squeezed in the worst way. He's got his personal connection with the Lord. It kind of reminds me of Galatians 2.20. Remember? Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. David turns in his time of need to the Lord because he's living out of a heart for God. Can you make the connection? Whatever the 
pressure point of life that you're feeling most acutely right now. It provides an opportunity to answer a question. Where are you going in your time of need? What's the movement of your soul? Where is your heart inclined to go when you feel as if you can't take it anymore? David goes to the Lord. And the Lord is inviting you in this story, the Lord is inviting you to live in a world where you go to the Lord with your need. Matter of fact, he's looking for a church filled with people who don't try to make it on their own, but rather entrust themselves to him. He's looking for a local church like Covenant. He's looking for a global church. We are people who go to the Lord in our times of need. And where that takes us then, of course, is this. What does it look like? What does it look like to go to the Lord in time of need? I think you need some go-to verses. If you're going to go to the Lord, I think you need some go-to verses that will help you remember his promises. Let's think about some of them. How about Hebrews chapter 13? Verse 4, I think it is. I will never leave you or forsake you. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13? There's no temptation that's come to you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will, with the temptation, make a way of escape so that you can bear up under it. How about Philippians chapter 4? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or, um, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I don't know what your point of being squeezed is today. But there are verses in the Bible that would be go-to verses. Uh, you need a go-to verse. Uh, if you're like me, you need a lot of go-to verses. Uh, so let me encourage you to get a go-to verse. What do you do with it once you find it? Well, how do I find it? Let me start there. You can work your way through the Psalms, and when you come across a verse that seems to jump off the page at, at you, mark that as one of your possible go-to verses. And then you can go down through the list and say, yeah, here's one I really, I really need. I really need to get this in my mind. So next thing, you write it out on a 3x5 card or a 4x6 card. And then the next step is you memorize it so that when you're waiting at the red light or you're in the shower or there's some other thing going on and you're half paying attention, uh, the Lord can bring that verse to your mind. And then what do you do with that verse? You preach it to yourself. God says that he's going to supply my needs. I am not in a hopeless situation. I am not at the end of his mercy. 
I'm at the beginning of his mercy. He's got more mercy in store for me. And so you quote the verse to yourself and you thank the Lord for it and then you go on strengthened by the promise. As David finds strength in the Lord his God. Would you do, it seems like that's something you could do, isn't it? You could pick a verse. You could write it down. You could memorize it. And then when you're feeling overwhelmed, you could say, oh yeah, i got to get my verse out. I need to preach this to myself. This is true about God because of the relationship that he has given me through faith in the Lord Jesus. And then you live out of that strength that the promises of God provide for the people of God. What I'm suggesting is this is the way that a person who has a heart for God lives when he's been squeezed almost beyond hope. He moves toward the Lord. The Lord is calling you to that kind of life in this week that's ahead. Lord, we ask you to bless your word to us. We thank you for it. Thank you for David. He, we see him on the pages of scripture as a bad sinner. And yet we see you working in his life. And we agree that we are like him, bad sinners. And we need you to strengthen us. So help us, Lord. Help us not to look at the probability of the success in our own efforts, but help us to look to the one who never leaves us or forsakes us. We pray that you would encourage us with these promises, and we ask these things with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.